All right, we're good to go. What's going on, everyone? Coach Damian Michael here, The Shift Method. Hope everyone's having a great day. And now with me today, I usually say it's someone I worked with or it's an extremely close friend. This one's a little different today. This is someone who I've met just recently, not too long ago, through a mutual friend. But nonetheless, we're honored and excited to have her on. And that is Emily Krause. Emily, can you go ahead and introduce yourself to the people? Tell them a little about who you are. Hello, everyone. I want to start off by saying thank you so much, Damien, for having me on your podcast. I'm very honored to be asked to be on here. I actually met Damien through, he was a guest on my podcast with my friend Hannah, and that's how we met. And so I'm very familiar with the podcast world. I'm excited to be here. So I am a registered dietitian. I completed my undergraduate work at Purdue University. And then I went on to complete my master's in dietetic internship at Benedictine University. At the moment, I'm in that post-grad school life job search portion of (laughs) life. And I also run a kind of professional nutrition Instagram account. And that's kind of what the majority of my time takes up right now. And I'm just really excited to be here. and talk about many things, nutrition, obesity, weight loss, and more. Yeah, we're going to cover a lot of cool things. And like Emily mentioned, her and uh, Hannah Thompson, they're the Upbeat Dietitian Podcast. Uh, Really good content. I know on here, we more so focus on the fitness side of things, but this is a health and wellness channel as well. So we want to make sure that we're covering all aspects of health, not just working out. So really good to get some insight from the dietitian side and that's dietitian with a, with a T not a C. I yes. Yeah. Make sure we cover that. <laughs> Hannah, Hannah, let me know that one last time. Now, yes. how did you, how did you meet Hannah? Cause you said you're not, you didn't go to Purdue initially. I did. Went, I did. It, it, I, undergrad, correct. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So that's where you met her and that's how y'all kind of started your friendship. Yeah, exactly. We had almost every single class together gotcha. for all four years. So you're bound to bond with those people when you see them every day. <laughs> Absolutely. And now is the plan, are you still based in Indiana? I'm so I'm actually from Northwest Chicago suburbs. Okay. And this is where I've grown up and lived for the, the entirety of my life. Gotcha. And the farthest I've ever been from home is actually Purdue, which is only a state over. So Gotcha. Yeah. Very cool. I went mm-hmm. to Chicago one time. I forget what part it was, but we went to one of the Equinox gyms there. Um, oh, it's a okay. cool city, man. It's very, the part we went, it was very pretty. Uh, yes. We went in like the early summer. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. It was just right. So it was very, very interesting. Those are the best days. It's, it's so much hotter now. It is absurd now. <laughs> I know. So when you can get that good weather, it's, makes it well worth it. Now, is the plan ideally to stay in Chicago area long-term or are you looking to go somewhere else or kind of just wherever life takes you at this point? So at the moment, I'm definitely going to stay in the Chicago suburb area. Long-term, I am really open to anything. I really like cities like Seattle and Colorado because I'm a big fan of like the national parks and everything. But at the moment, Chicago is where I will be at for the next couple of years or so. Very cool. Yeah. I 
always hear about and see pictures of the West. And I would love to visit like, you know, Nevada and Utah just for like the state parks. But yeah, most West I've been in this country is St. Louis, unfortunately, which isn't very West. Oh my God. (laughs) I know. I'm an East Coast kid, man. That's where I grew up in South Florida and that's where I stayed. Oh my gosh. You definitely need to check those places out. That's yes. like half the con- half the country. I is know. Over there. I know. And my girlfriend, she always is like, oh, I've been to this national park and this one. And I'm like, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> oh my gosh. Go with her. <laughs> yeah. That would be really fun. Especially like I see pictures of Arizona, New Mexico, and I'm like, man, that looks fun. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we jump into some of the topics, of course, got to relate these things to fitness somehow. What are some fitness things that you like to do on your time? Are you a weightlifter? Do you like to run? What's kind of like your, your wheelhouse when it comes to fitness? Yeah. So I grew up playing mostly like soccer, tennis, and track. And after high school, I kind of was in that weird rut of like, what do I do now fitness wise that I don't have a set schedule and team that's forcing me to work out and compete. So I turned to running and that's something that I really enjoy. I really like 5Ks mostly. I've done okay. a couple half marathons and I'm still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> so you want that but, mid distance. You're not the, yes, the short, really you're not like, long. Okay. Yeah. I'm currently actually training for a sprint triathlon because I Ooh. wanted to I was kind of just sick of doing just running and I was like, let's see if we add two other sports to it and we'll, we'll see how this goes. And it, it definitely makes it more interesting with the variety. Yes. The swimming is tough, man. I I can bike, (laughs) I can run, but I took a swim class in undergrad and I was like swimming. I don't want to swim. Nope. Basically like drowned. It's hard. hard. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I think everyone should keep up with swimming because like one, it's a life skill. Yeah. And also it's really great for your like fitness wise. And Absolutely. especially if you like joint problems and stuff, like anytime I like might've tweaked something while running when I go and swim, like I'm just floating. And <laughs> yeah, it feels good on the body just to get in. It's a great mm-hmm. way for cardiovascular fitness, get a little resistance on the body. So couldn't agree with mm-hmm. you more on that. Yeah. So very, very cool. Let's kind of jump into some of the things we're going to talk about today. So the first one I want to talk about, and as mentioned, I was on the Upbeat Dietitian podcast, and some of these topics are going to mirror that. Uh, Of course, we're going to try and make some distinctions so that way you guys get a little bit of everything, but I highly recommend watching both so you can kind of hear the nuances of the conversation. The first place we're going to start with is obesity. And you know, from the fitness side of things, we talk about program design, we talk about maybe some behavior change if we get into the wellness aspect of things. But from a fitness perspective, you know, just from scope of practice wise, and maybe for some trainers and educational standpoint, it's kind of, it's that weird gray area, right? Where it's like, I can't really say too much. I want to stay in my lane. So we want to do, you know, or discuss some things about obesity to not only help out, you know, the general population, but also maybe some trainers out there to get some more insight on the subject. So can you just kind of, from a dietitian standpoint and your understanding, can you kind of just define what exactly obesity is? Yeah, definitely. So in the realm of nutrition, obesity is uh, a very complex disease with many factors that will influence 
individual's risk of it. But when it comes down to it, it plain and simple is more, uh, more so an excessive amount of body fat or adipose tissue. And like I said, it's can be affected by your genetics, your environment, your diet, your physical activity levels, your stress levels, societal factors and influences, your economic status, age, so many different things go into this disease. But when most people think obesity, they might think like higher weight or larger size, but it really does come down to the body fat percentage or component of it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good distinction because, and I, the, I can't think of the scientific term. I think there's one for, we tend to think obese and it is true, you know, generally larger individuals are going to carry more body fat maybe, but you can also be obese where you have a high body fat, maybe because your muscle mass is low relatively, but appear relatively thin. You may, you just may not look very muscular. I, I not a big fan of the term, but you hear the term skinny fat in kind of a sense yes. where it's like, this person is just skin and bone and like a little bit of a belly, but they may be, if you were to measure their body fat, they may actually be clinically obese, right? Mm-hmm. I think I lost you. Oh no. Okay. I, there she, okay, there okay. she is. Perfect. Sorry about that little. Do you need me to repeat probably. anything? Yes. I'll make sure to cut that out. <laughs> but I was talking about, um, is it true that, you know, it could also be people who are appear thinner, but mm-hmm. they may have a higher amount of body fat on them actually, and be considered obese. Right. Yes. That is definitely very true. Obesity is not about what you see on the outside and you cannot self-diagnose or like diagnose another person based off what they look like, but it really is about what is going on inside that we're going to need more clinical tools to diagnose. And oftentimes also obesity is correlated with BMI, which we will be going into later because I can go on a a very long tangent about the issues with BMI, but oftentimes you might hear like that above 30 number classifies you as obese, but I know mm-hmm. so many people that are class like above that number and they're completely fine. It's just, they have a very large muscle, muscle mass portion to mm-hmm. their body. And also it doesn't take into BMI does not take into account body composition. I always tell people that too. BMI is one tool. It's an imperfect tool. Um, I think we mentioned on your podcast a little bit, sometimes like if you take people who are over 30, you catch a good number of people, but also there are those people in that category, like take athletes or people who are very fit and just have to be very large. They may just have a high amount of muscle mass, or they might just have um, just, they're a big body person. And then they're going to test positive. It's like, I'm healthy. I'm active. I'm obese. What's up with that? It's like, well, no, it's just a correlation of your height and weight for generality. It doesn't include necessarily your body fat percentage, which is what obesity actually is, which is important to make that distinction. BMI was used as kind of like Mm -hmm. a quick and dirty way of like, Hey, we can just kind of look at this and we can get a rough assumption if maybe you're obese, but body fat at the end of the day is the metric that we're looking at. Right. Exactly. Exactly. She's whimpering. Oh, I'm just going to let her out. Cause I feel right. like <laughs> give me like, no, you're one good. Minute. One minute. 
here at the shift method, we always, <laughs> always support doggos, whether they are barking, whining, crying, um, or begging for treats. That is something that we 100% support on this podcast. We will not demonize dogs. I will not be cutting out the dog audio. If you have a problem with the dog audio, I don't know what to tell you. If you are a cat lover, there's nothing wrong with that. Cats are pretty cool for the most part, but I would say this is a pro dog podcast. So yeah, you're just going to have to deal with that. But no, in all seriousness, I'm just going to move her pup out of the way. That way we can go ahead and carry on. She made it back. I don't know if you can hear her barking in the background, how bad that is. We're all good. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Then she can stay out there. Um, well, no, I was just going on a tangent how this is a pro dog podcast. I, I, I heard issue. it as I was going. Oh, okay, perfect. There we go. Good, good. Um, yeah. Where were we? I'm trying to remember. Um, we were talking about how BMI above 30 yes, yes. might not catch every, might catch a lot of people, but not necessarily all of those outliers. That exactly. It's everything they do is healthy, but. Exactly. Now, you mentioned earlier when you were kind of going into obesity, how it's a little more complicated than I think, I would say, especially the general public, but also fitness professionals tend to give credit to, you know, we hear this purveying message of, it's just, you're lazy. It's just, you eat too much. And while I'll say this, and I'm, like I said, on podcasts, I'm always willing to be wrong. I'm always willing to have differing opinions. My understanding is it is as simple as calories in, calories out. It's all about energy expenditure, energy balance, but it's not that simple to implement or change behavior because if you're eating more than you're burning, essentially outside of like, um, metabolic, like certain metabolic diseases or things that maybe where your metabolism is different or exaggerated in certain ways Mm -hmm. for the general population, it's eating more than you're burning or consuming maybe a normal diet that is for your body, but you're not burning excess calories through physical activity. And thus you're put on extra weight, but just because it is that simple stat or that simple on paper, that doesn't take into account the other things you mentioned, like the socioeconomic status, the lifestyle, the, how you were raised, like your environment or whatever else it may be. Does that motto kind of ring true to you or, or do you have a different opinion? I, I would say so from like, from the very simple standpoint it is a lot correlated with that calories in calories out, but those additional factors do play such a large role in an individual's life that they almost, I would say pair on the same level in terms mm-hmm. of effectiveness in terms of putting someone at risk for obesity. I think especially like genetics is one of the biggest components yeah. of that where Someone can, I've said, we've talked about this before when you came on our podcast, someone can eat the exact same way as someone else. Someone can exercise the exact same way and they're not going to look the same. And with those epigenetic factors that might be influencing them, it's going to really, especially if there's like a family history of obesity, then they'll definitely be at higher risk and might be more predisposed to it. So I don't know if I'd say that it is just calories in, ins and out. I would say, I think it's calories ins and out, but also those other factors play just as big of a role. Gotcha. 
And yeah, I think that's important to highlight. Cause like I said, even if calories out calories in calories out is an important factor saying it doesn't really do anything. And I'm all about, if it doesn't help or change anything, like if I just tell my client, Hey, just eat less, move more. Oh yeah. That's, I mean, I mean, <laughs> is that a good idea? And so, yeah, it might be a good idea, yeah. but me just saying that is like, you know, it's not doing anything productive to help the person. So it's, do we talk about different strategies? Do we talk about uh, different ways that you interact with your family or your meals at the dinner table? Or is it seeing a dietitian and maybe going over some strategies that you can work on together? That whole mm-hmm. process is probably the more meaningful thing to attack than just, well, you just got to eat less, just eat less. Cause clearly it's exactly. not working. And I'm, I'm sure they've heard that so many times and hearing it again would just be like disappointing to them because it really is about like figuring out what's going on in their life and how can we make this the most individualized so we can help their needs to the best of our ability with what situation they have going on. Yeah. So going off with the, like, I say the biopsychosocial aspects of whatever it may be pain in this case, obesity, what do you have to say to someone who? Because I think a lot of people just, I'm going to speak anecdotally, I don't want to generalize everyone, but in the general public, they think obesity is a lack of dedication. It is laziness. It is, you know, just, you're not strong-willed enough. What would you say as a dietitian to people who have those, you know, those preconceptions about obesity? I think they should really reflect on their own thought process and something I actually did take note of and I wanted to discuss was the quality of life related to obesity because there's so much discrimination against individuals who are larger size and also the fat phobia implemented into our mindsets is like absurd and it's really is we need to take a lesson and kind of reflect on how we're thinking. Why am I thinking this way? Is this even appropriate to say? And let's try to stop that thought in our head before we do put it out into existence because it's so much more than just being lazy. Like, and they really, you really don't understand what someone's going through until you've walked in their shoes. Like you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. You don't know how their mental health is doing. Yep. What they might have physical health, like their social life. There's if there's a support system for them, yep. you don't know any of that. So before you make some debatably unwarranted comments to someone, <laughs> <laughs> uh, really think about how you don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know what they've tried and you don't know what they're currently going through right now because they're getting enough. I don't want to say hate, but there's definitely a sense of almost like uncomfort or, or like discomfort and bias toward individuals like that. Some, some examples were like, not being able to find sizes at a store or having Mm -hmm. to shop online because they weren't able to find sizes. And for a lot of people like shopping, they really enjoy putting on the clothes and trying them on, but not being able to find sizes like is so disheartening. And 
very frustrating that it can take away from that experience. Additionally, the biases around when you see what someone's eating and you might make a preconceived notion about their size. Like, for example, on TikTok, there I've seen videos of like a, a more slimmer, thin shaped girl who's like binge eating and like mm-hmm. she's like this is look at all what, these things I ate in a meal and then you look at the comment section they're like oh my gosh like these look so good commenting on the food and then right. you'll have the parallel of another video with someone who's of larger size mm-hmm. and the comments are horrendous oh I don't even want to imagine that <laughs> so I I already know the comments before I see them which makes me so disappointed yeah that people would say these things. And I'm like, really think like, in that case, you're hiding behind a screen because it's much easier to be me behind a screen than it is in someone's face. But before you make comments like that, I guess really think about what your intentions are and am I actually trying to help them? Yeah. And I know some people will say, well, if you don't say those things means that I'm trying to help them and I, it's tough love. And to that, I would say, you know, what's your success rate? Yeah. Because like I, we talked about, like, and we'll talk some stats a little later, like it's not getting better. It isn't, it's getting worse by the year. Um, I would still say I'm seeing like a shift and probably it's because the algorithm on my social media shows some positive things about mental health and obesity. But when I hear the general public, it's the same message that it's always been, which is you're lazy, you're fat, get away from me. You have you know, lack of self-control, yada, yada, yada. So yeah, I like the way you outlined it. And I think it could be summed up by saying empathy and compassion, like try yeah. having some, and I know online it's easier to just take a little bit of aggression and a little bit of like, you know, short, you know, social clout and commentary just to get some likes or like, Oh man, look at that. Burn that person. It's like, just think for a little bit, you know, have some empathy. Like I'm going to say, you don't know what's going on between the person's ears And I'll always say with fitness and your health in general, there's two sides to it, right? I'll always advocate for personal responsibility, meaning doing your best with what you got to make the most out of a situation, regardless of where you are. You have to want to change. You have to want to be active. You have to want to read a book. If your goal is to read more, you have to want to change and get better. And most people do. Most people say, I want to lose the weight. I want to get better. I want to be in shape. That's part of it. But the second part is what is their ability to change based on the other factors that Emily just mentioned? Did you have a family member that actually is involved in fitness and healthy eating? Do you live in a neighborhood that has access to, you know, like grocery stores with affordable, healthy, nutritious food, or is it dominated by fast food, right? It's all these factors that you have to take into account with someone's environment their mental health that has to go into the equation, boiling it down to one thing, just saying you're lazy. That's intellectually lazy in my personal opinion. And I'm not trying to demonize people who think about that way. I think most of the time it's not like always just, you know, poke at someone when it's, I hear it from sometimes family members will say it to other people. And it's like, I can't believe you said that, but they're like, they think they're doing something good, but it's just hurting the person. man. it's, it's making them more upset. Maybe they binge eat for, a couple months and they lose like five pounds. You're like, Oh my God. But then it's like, they go right back to where they were. And now they have this unhealthy behavior. And it's like, 
great work. Look what we did. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a, uh, it's very unfortunate, yes. but we're going to keep on trucking on. So with, now we talked about obesity, we talked about some of the biopsychosocial stuff about it. Got a little bit into social media, which is always good to bring up. Um, so why do we care about obesity? Right? So when we talk about this, you know, we're going to talk about maybe some strategies regarding it from a dietitian standpoint, what are some of the health impacts associated with obesity in general? Yeah. So obesity actually is, there is a correlation between a lot of different chronic diseases. Some of those, including heart disease, diabetes, multiple different types of cancer. Um, You could develop some digestive issues such as like heartburn, gallbladder disease, liver disease. And additionally, you could also eventually develop sleep apnea and osteoarthritis. And actually recently very pertinent to the real world right now is they found that individuals who carried higher body fat percentage experienced higher severity of COVID-19 symptoms. Mm. Yeah. I did remember hearing that a few times and that's, Mm -hmm. uh, that's extremely unfortunate because it's, you know, we want to try and protect people who are vulnerable in certain situations. That is, that's unfortunate as well. I mentioned on yours, the other thing from my side, like the pain side of things is, you know, higher sensitivity to pain or more frequency and experiencing, experiencing pain, excuse me, you know, higher rates of depression, right. It kind of hits all like factors of health. It's not just like one thing, like cardiovascular disease. It's this multitude of areas that it hits, which is unfortunate because then it's like all this one thing, which isn't a very simple thing, but this one thing is kind of branching out to all these other issues that it can cause. Yeah. Or vice versa. Maybe all the other issues or some issues are causing the obesity. Right. And it's kind of very true. You know, a lot of tell. it is interlinked. So yeah. it's tricky it to determine. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Now we kind of established a little bit about what it is and kind of some of the negative health outcomes that might be associated with it. So people might be thinking, well, okay, like how do I know if I'm obese? You mentioned, you know, body fat percentage, right? Uh, do y'all still use kind of the scale for uh, women, approximately 32%, men 25%, or do you use any other kind of metrics like waist circumference or other stuff to kind of determine body fat percentage or obesity? Definitely, I would say a multitude of the different factors. Body fat percentage is definitely a big one. And additionally to the waist circumference, if I remember correctly, I haven't reviewed this in a while, but I believe it's 40 mm-hmm. inches for men, 35 for women. Yep. And then also I know a big one is triceps, tricep skin folds oh. is another one that kind of plays a big part in assessing body fat percentage. For men, women, or both? I believe... For both. That was kind of the main one to go to, but if you have the time and resources, they try to hit those, like the six or seven main ones throughout the body. I know for personal trainers, we do the Jackson Pollock threefold and the female is one of the sites is the tricep, but for the men, it's the pectoral instead. So that's interesting. That sounds, I feel like that sounds more accurate. (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. No, that's, that's cool. Actually, I didn't know that that site specifically could help determine. And then like you would maybe track it over time to see if it gets smaller. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. The unfortunate part is in order to be good at skinfold, as you know, you have to do it hundreds, hundreds of times. So not only do you, we need the training in that, we also need the resources of purchasing decent quality skinful calipers. So it's not something we always get, but when it's there, it's a nice factor to look into. Yeah. I always tell my trainers because where we're at right now, we have either the skinfold caliper or we have the handheld BIA, which yeah, is nice. But again, the handheld one's not perfect because it really only takes into account the upper body. It's affected by hydration levels, uh, menstrual cycle, um, skin temperature, like so many things can throw it off. And it's like, hard to get a repeatable setting, but the caliper, unless like you're really good at it and you're consistently doing it and God forbid, if your client like changes to another coach or another dietitian, you might as well start from scratch. Cause it's like the chances of you like being as accurate or close to none. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a- in a perfect world, that's a factor we look into, but realistically focusing more on body fat percentage and waist circumference. Yeah. So let's say someone came to you and they're looking to um, pursue weight loss and you determine that they actually would be a good candidate for it. They have a, you determine that they have a, you know, an abnormally high body fat and it would be good to lose some body fat for better health outcomes. Do you use weight at all to kind of track that? Or is it more so paying attention to body fat pending that the client is comfortable with that information, of course, but do you use weight as a metric at all or at any point, or is that kind of maybe something off to the side? I think I personally would utilize it as a tracking, just to track it over time. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much I would share it with the client though. That's kind of, I'd want to focus more on a lot of the, like, as we say, like the non-scale victories, yeah. um, a lot more of the body composition coming from that standpoint and also those like just, I guess, subjective measures of success. I think with tracking weight with the, with the, I guess, objective of weight loss, you kind of should be tracking it just to keep that on record somewhere, but it's not something that will be deciding how successful they are. And we'll be focusing more so on like that overall well-being. Gotcha. Yeah. That's something I, if I can tell, and I think I have a pretty good reading on clients when I meet them, if I can tell they're more shy and apprehensive about the scale, sometimes I won't weigh them at all. I'll say, Hey, like, and I can tell they're a good candidate for weight loss. I'm like, let's just get started. Let's just get mm-hmm. you active. Cause you're not active right now. Let's have fun doing it. And then when your confidence goes up and it's still important to you, we'll check the scale then, right? They'll notice other things, energy, waist size going down from their pants, shirts getting, they'll notice things. If I have a client that's maybe on the fence and like, I want some good data to make sure my program is going the right direction. I'll do exactly what you said. I'll say, Hey, go on the scale backwards. Don't even worry. Let me worry about that number. Just make sure my programming is good. And a lot of times that takes away a lot of the fear of anxiety. Like, okay, my coach has that number. I don't have to worry about it at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's also a good point. I liked how you're talking about the two different sides, mm-hmm. but I want to bring into like a third side, the people that are obsessed with that number. Good point. I think that would a be good a good time to either even like weigh them less. So it's not even part of the discussion 
and try to try to bring that focus more back to how we're feeling, how our clothes are fitting, stuff like that. Because that obsession with the scale number is Mm -hmm. really not healthy. And if that's the entire objective behind the weight loss, then we might need to revisit some things and go back to our assessment of why are we trying to find the why behind why we want this and not just to reach a specific number that will yeah. make us happy. Love talking about the why, man. It's like, I always give this example, but it's a good one. Client comes in, you know, again, BMI not perfect, but they're five foot six, a hundred pounds. And they say, I want to lose weight. Do you just say, okay, good to go. That's what they want. It's like, no, it needs a, a conversation, right? It's like, why do you feel like that is the goal that you want? Or why is that important to you? Do some digging, peel off the layers a little bit. And maybe you find out that they maybe meant something completely different. Maybe they meant, well, actually, no, I just want to like build some muscle and like, you know, lose some body fat. Okay. Com- completely different thing. Right. Or maybe you find out that uh, maybe I need to refer them out because they have some, you know, unfortunate, uh, patterns of behavior or thoughts regarding food and the way they should look. So it's always important to start with your why. So you know that you're both starting on the same foot. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something also like listeners can think about because I'm sure I feel like it's such a common discussion that like, you know, someone who is trying to lose weight right now, like there's, that's, I think a hundred percent guarantee and taking that time to reflect about why exactly do I want to lose weight or what is this person want to lose weight as obviously don't give out any unsolicited advice or make mm-hmm. comments about people's weight, but that's definitely a good reflection question about the purpose behind and motivation for yourself about why you want to change. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Now, before we put a bow on the overview of obesity, which I think we, you did a wonderful job with, I don't want to skip over this. You mentioned like some, some general understandings of how obesity is more than just the biological side of things. There's the other things going to it from a dietitian standpoint, kind of a health professional noticing the trend of obesity going up over time and our health as a country going down over time. What do you think is some specific things that are causing these trends to occur? So I think there, I feel like there are just so many, there's so many changes in especially like America over the past couple of decades that I don't even know if I could pinpoint like right now, the top ones that I think are the strongest influences, but I definitely think the quality of food has a big part in it. And I guess like the affordability of food as well, because- yep. Oftentimes when individuals think eating healthy, they think like organic, you have to eat gluten-free, you have to eat dairy-free, all these labels that a lot of like the diet industry has put and influenced onto marketing where oftentimes when you see these labels, that's an excuse for the company to upcharge that. Exactly. you can get just as good food that does not hit those different labels and requirements that are deemed healthy. So I think there needs to be a lot more education about how you can still eat healthy and make it affordable because 
there's such like a polarizing effect of like all this super healthy food is so expensive. I can't fit it into my weekly grocery budget. Mm -hmm. I'll just eat out because it's cheaper and convenient. So that definitely is one of the biggest portions about, I guess the biggest influences about the overall health. Um, I'd also say like physical activity levels. I know that's kind of, that's a weird area also for dietitians because we recommend regular physical activity. Of course. Besides that, we don't really (laughs) go more into it. Um, But I think there's definitely a decrease in everyday physical activity levels, whether that's like more screen time, not just going outside as much. I know a lot with like mental health, people can't even like get up, which like they're dealing with other stuff. So it -hmm. makes sense how that can be correlated because I actually visited France a couple of years ago and the amount that everyone like moves around there is insane. Yeah. <laughs> it was baffled. I was like, oh my gosh, we should do this all the time. And I think honestly, when I think about my own experience here in America, like the most I've moved around was when I was back at Purdue and you're walking between classes, you're walking to work, oh, you're yeah. constantly moving around. And then you kind of get into mine was weird because grad school was like a lot of it was online because of COVID. So like I'm kind yeah. of exempting that from my <laughs> example, but you go into the adult world and unless you're in a field that involves a lot of movement, you're working that nine to five, yeah. you're sitting at a desk all day and you're not really moving. And yeah. a lot of people are too tired to like work out before or after just because it can be really draining. So I think has played a huge role in our overall health. So I'd say, I guess, affordability of healthy food, education about healthy eating mm-hmm. and physical activity levels would be my top votes for the biggest influence on the health of Americans specifically. Yeah, I definitely, I'm in agreement. Those are, those are some of the big ones, starting with the, the food one. I mean, Organic and GMO foods is a whole other conversation. I'm sure we could rant on about that for hours, (laughs) but you're right. It's fast food or certain foods in general. Well, I, and I don't think you do this either. I don't dichotomize. I don't separate good food and bad food from each other. Like food is a very social thing. It's a thing to fuel your body. You have to do it for the rest of your life. Are some foods more nutritionally valuable than others? Absolutely. But even foods that have very high value, there's something out there that's even higher value than it. Right. So there's nothing wrong with McDonald's per se. It feeds a lot of people, a Mm -hmm. lot of people that can't afford a lot of things. The problem is that constantly eating this again and again, this low satiety, high calorie, low nutrient density food isn't productive for your body in the long term. And then you kind of form and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you can, with these foods that are very, uh, not to demonize sugar or fat at all, but these foods that are very high in sugar, high in fat and high in salt content or sodium content, they have somewhat of an addictive quality when combined together in that we see in fast food that makes people kind of just crave them even more. So that makes it hard. And then, like you said, the other foods are perceived to be more expensive or it's only healthy if it's more expensive. So that's a whole other can of worms. Like people think I can't eat healthy because I can't afford to eat healthy. 
an education side, I don't know how to eat healthy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that is a really good point. We are not demonizing like fast food. I eat fast food. food. And so, yeah, there are some really great options. It's really about finding the balance between it and figuring out how you can include all these different types of food and still enjoy them because when you gotta enjoy it, man. Oh yeah. You can't, if you're eating food, you don't like because it's healthy for the rest of your life, you're going to be miserable. Yeah. Food is such a huge component of your life. You're eating like three plus times a day. You should be happy. Might as well enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. I can throw down some Chick-fil-A dude. Love (laughs) Chick-fil-A. I I thought about that because when you mentioned the whole, I'm backtracking a little bit, but this is, this is important and funny. I, I eat a lot, right. I'm, I'm not a huge guy, but I'm decently, I'm six feet tall, like 180, 185. And I have a pretty good metabolism. I can eat a lot and I am relatively lean and thin. Um, but I notice I'm like the amount of food I eat, let's put, this is just put in perspective, right? If I'm hungry, Chick-fil-A, I'm getting two sandwiches. If I'm really hungry, I'm getting three, I'm getting a large fry and I'm getting a milkshake. And if I'm really hungry later, I might have a dessert even later. So like, that's oh how much I'll eat. When I order that, usually no one bats an eye. No one looks like, oh, there's this dude who's, you know, in relatively decent shape. He's just ordering a lot of food or like an athlete when they order just a plate of food. No one thinks twice. Oh, yeah. But this most recent time I went to Chick-fil-A, maybe I'm crazy, but every time I was trying to order more, the person was like, okay, can I get your name? Or like, is that all? And I was like, no, I want more food. I'm trying to order more food. <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, I couldn't imagine the like stares and like the tone and like the way people around you would perceive me if I was much heavier or like didn't look like I was fit. I and like how that would be. And I'm just trying to eat like just to like maintain my hunger and fuel my body. And I'm getting like, yeah. oh God, here's this guy go again, ordering freaking 50 sandwiches, you know? Yeah. That's like, that's, that'd be de- demoralizing Yeah, because you're just trying like drive through minimal human interaction. Yeah. <laughs> you're going through there. You're probably trying to get something fast. You don't want to talk to like anyone. You're just trying to get your food and go on with your day. And then these people, like you feel like someone's judging you for how much you're eating. And I'm like, you don't know. Okay. You don't know if that's for them. You don't know yep. if that's for other people. It could be for their family. Yeah, exactly. They could be picking up an order. Like, yeah. Yeah. It could be an like, Uber eats or like a delivery dude. You don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like they're giving you business. Just you should be, be happy with that. <laughs> it's so weird, man. And then, like you said, with the fitness side, the physical activity side, right? It's my wheelhouse. We know that less than a quarter of Americans report meeting the minimum guidelines. So that's kind of something that we're trying to tackle as well. Get people active, do our best to provide education for fitness and nutritional eating, not demonizing things and making sure people enjoy eating and enjoy working out. That should hopefully, hopefully help make the problem a little bit better. Right. Absolutely. Good. So now we have a good overview of kind of what obesity is, the ins and outs of it. Now let's get into some 
some action items, right? Let's go ahead and talk about maybe some strategies from a dietitian standpoint in terms of how would you approach the issue if someone is trying to, you know, who is obese trying to lose weight or lose body fat per se? Mm -hmm. So from a very clinical standpoint, a dietitian would typically approach weight loss as we recommend that like 200 to 500 calorie decrease each day. Mm-hmm. So that way over time you're in that caloric deficit and you'll lose weight, but that's a very, unless an individual is tracking, that's hard to gauge throughout the day. So kind of what I recommend oftentimes with weight loss is trying to do like smaller portions, trying to increase your veggie and fruit intake often because that has much, you can eat much more voluminous foods. So you'll feel more full, but they're very nutrient dense and not as high as in calories, but something really important to note with weight loss is when you're putting your body in a calorie, a caloric deficit, it's going to try to combat those actions. It's yep. not, your body's not just gonna be like, okay, time to get rid of this body fat. Like, <laughs> like yeah. this is what the, they want me to do. It's going to try to maintain that homeostasis. So it's going to kind of rely on those sources that are more readily available, specifically your muscle stores and your protein stores. That's kind of one of the biggest ones your body will turn to when you're putting yourself more, not in starvation, but you're definitely decreasing your normal caloric intake. And that's why it's so important that you consume adequate amount of protein. And sometimes we also actually increase the protein a little Mm. bit to combat any potential muscle loss, because that's oftentimes an unfortunate part of weight loss, if not done correctly, is individuals actually might see decreases in muscle mass and not body fat, which no one, no one going for weight loss normally is trying to achieve that. So that's why it's so important that you work with a dietitian who understands what you're eating and what you basically, they can like give you the rundown and help you through each day of what you should be aiming for. Additionally, with weight loss, we're not going to tell you to cut out your favorite foods. We're not going to tell you to, you're not allowed to eat Burger King for the rest of your life. We're not going to tell you that you're like, you can't have dessert anymore. No more salty snacks. That's not something a dietitian is going to do. There is a way you can lose weight and still consume foods that you enjoy. That's one of the biggest messages we want to send out there. Like Oftentimes we might get into this later with the different diets, but oftentimes there's fear mongering around food groups and sometimes even macronutrients. Like I'm, you probably heard carbs are like evil. That's kind of one of the biggest things I'd say, at least for the last decade. Yeah. Um, they've been public enemy number one in the nutrition world, but you can, you don't need to cut out these huge groups of food to lose weight. That's going to only lead to 
a binge and restriction cycle and you're going to just feel really gross and not have any type of good time. And then additionally, kind of the last portion of weight loss is getting back in touch with your body in terms of your hunger cues, satiety cues, stuff like that. Because oftentimes when people have years and years of dieting behind them, they no longer are able to gauge when they're actually hungry, when they're full, because they were living with such strict rules in their life. So we really do try to help you through intuitive eating, mindful eating. We can go into that more later, but trying to get you back in touch with what it feels like to be hungry, or am I just craving food because I'm bored or sad, like very much being able to identify all these different factors and what's going on with your body because dieting really does mess up a lot of your natural biological mechanisms. Yeah. I like how you outline kind of those three different strategies. I want to start first with the calorie counting or the macronutrient, maybe portion counting as well. I, I go back and forth on this one for a few reasons. One, I know people who have kind of that type A personality and that are very precise and like numbers, it might be a great strategy for them. And they're like, coach says, I got a track. My dietitian said, I can do this. I can have this much of this. I'm aiming for these numbers. That's awesome. But I, I'm sure you can relate to this as actually working with people and doing this is that it's very hard, even as professionals for us to track accurately, let alone the general public to do it consistently and reliably. Right. Yes. Cause a I tablespoon think- of peanut butter. It's not a tablespoon of peanut butter when you have to scoop it out. It never no, is. it's, it's, it's so sad. Like it's it so is when I actually scoop it out and portion it out. I'm like, all right, I'm like, no, let's one. just put that away. I'm <laughs> going to put how much I want on here. Yeah, definitely. I think I really like how you brought up like the whole type A personality. Like this might work really well for them. Something I didn't know before, but I just thought of it is, a lot of these strategies, we want them to be able to implement for the rest of their life, not yes. for the goal of weight loss necessarily, but a lot of lifestyle changes. And we're not going to expect you to track your calories and macros for the rest of your life. You, yeah. That can be very time consuming. And anywhere you go, we don't want you like, say you're like past your weight loss journey, you're in maintenance living your best life. Yeah. When you go to like a social gathering and there's appetizers out, what are you going to do? You're going to pull your like, scale out of your purse. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh, can someone tell me the ingredient list of like <laughs> no, this yeah. recipe and let me measure out how many I'm allowed to have. And I can, that's just not realistic it's to not. maintain long-term. So it's definitely something I personally try to stay away from because people like get stuck on that. This is my calorie goal. I need to meet all these things. And it can come, it can become very obsessive. Yeah. And I try to go very much with like, let's add these things. Let's feel like, let's think about how our body's feeling, like trying to do more changes with them that will help them 
in terms of their overall lifestyle and in the long run rather than did I meet like 2000 calories today? Yeah. Did I meet like 1900? Right. That's got to be sustainable. Yeah. Yep. I like too that you mentioned, and this goes for anyone listening. If someone says you can't have a certain food, unless you're speaking to a doctor and it's about a medical condition, run. Cause that's <laughs> a bunch of bull crap. Anyone yeah. who says you can't eat fruit because the sugar content is too high and glycemic index and oh. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Do yourself a favor and run. If someone says that, like Emily mentioned, we'll talk about this later. If someone says that carbohydrates are bad and they cause diabetes and you're going to be fat and yada, 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 run until your legs fall off. If someone yeah. says that too much protein is going to give you kidney stones, please run and then go lift weights and then run some more because that is complete another bullcrap. Outside mm-hmm. of a medical professional, telling you for a yeah. very specific disease that you should not have these foods. There's no reason you can't eat whatever the heck you want. Like Emily mentioned, it's moderation, portion control, enjoyment, and then filling the majority of your food with nutrient dense and nutrient fulfilling foods. Yeah. The only foods you shouldn't eat are ones you're allergic to. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great strategy. I mean, I guess if peanut butter is really good your- though. Are you allergic to peanuts? No, not at all. But if I was, oh, okay. I would, if, if I was, I'd probably, it depends on how allergic I'd be, but maybe I'd just be there with the EpiPen. This is not medical advice. Let me just, let me just put that asterisk there. This is not medical advice. If you're allergic, please do not eat allergy foods. Please do not sue me. But if I was hypothetically allergic to peanut butter, knowing how much it's one of my top, I'd say three favorite things to eat. And I wasn't like deathly allergic. I probably would still eat it every now and again. And that's how much I like it. So I might disagree with you on that one, Emily. I might say that I might eat things if I'm slightly allergic sometimes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if the reaction good, is, is manageable. <laughs> and I was like, I hope people aren't about to put themselves at risk of like anaphylaxis for like no. None of a that. peanut butter cookie. <laughs> God, no, but yeah, all seriousness, if you're allergic or medical condition wise, doctor says no. That's kind of like the only restriction when it comes to that, yeah. right? Love yeah. it. Now, let's say you got a client, they're killing it. They're being physically active. They got their protein checked off. They're controlling their portions. You're trying all these strategies, but it just doesn't seem to be working. I'm not going in the direction that you want. Do you then look and say, maybe this is just a person that this is a good weight for them? Or are you checking other things? I think, I think I definitely do both because definitely analyzing like is weight loss even worth trying to achieve because they feel fine at this weight. Like they feel good about themselves. They feel good in their clothes. They're happy with themselves. Mm -hmm. Is it even appropriate after all these changes and they've made more healthier decisions in terms of their lifestyle. I'd also would though reassess the approach, the why, um, maybe there's something going on that I don't know about Mm -hmm. and trying to take all those factors into account. I think it definitely is both are very important. Let's say everything checks out. Doctor says they're good. Blood work is great. 
everything's good. They're active. They're following your advice. You can tell their life has changed dramatically, but their body fat's still pretty damn high. Would you kind of look at that as like, eh, this one's just an outlier and they're, they're healthy. They're living their best life. Or do you still have some concern? I would say at that point, like they're living their best life. I agree. It's probably just an they're, outlier. They're at that happy point kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like that's just one component of their health when yeah. everything else is doing so much better and they're happy. We want them to be happy. And yeah. we're not going to allow that one identifier to change everything and potentially put them in a situation that they're no longer as happy in. 100%. So, okay. So we got some cool strategies and I like those because yes, of course, you know, highly recommend if you're, you know, able to afford and can go see a dietitian, definitely mm-hmm. go see one registered one, but those strategies are cool. Cause in some ways you can kind of implement them on your own or at least experiment oh. with them on your own. Right. It's like, yeah. Okay. Emily says, cut my calories by two to 500. I can try that. I like to track. Emily says, lower my portions a little bit. Okay. I'm going to cut dinner in half. Emily says, add more fruits, veggies, and protein. I'll do that in my diet. Those are very realistic, tangible strategies. Yes. So the barrier to entry is pretty low, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely, there's no like secret method to Mm -hmm. weight loss. There's, we're not gatekeeping any information from you. It's kind of, it can be as simple as that. Those little changes in your life can lead to weight loss. Yeah. I know I hadn't planned to talk about this one, but just kind of like last little, little segment for this piece. So I'm curious about your opinion. Thoughts on weight loss medication as a strategy for weight loss? So I'm very conflicted about weight loss medication because it can help Mm -hmm. if nothing else is working, but it doesn't teach you those lifestyle factors and changes because what happens if they take the weight loss medication They get to like their healthy, acceptable weight, Mm -hmm. but then they revert back to all their behaviors that got them into that situation, or they don't change anything else about their life besides taking a medication. And now we're back to where we started. Right. So I, I feel like I, I don't really deal a lot with weight loss medications because that's normally a physician is involved with that mm-hmm. and it's prescribed by them. But I feel that lifestyle changes are much more realistic. They're much more affordable, much better success in the long run in mm-hmm. terms of implementing that in your life. And I think it also just teaches you to really reflect on your relationship with food and your body. Yeah which I think are much more valuable lessons and you actually will take a lot more away from your entire weight loss journey compared to, I don't want to say easy fix because getting in that situation was like hard enough. And I'm sure individuals already tell themselves very nasty things because self-sabotaging and we don't need more of that, but the medication route, I wouldn't say is my top choice. Gotcha. 
And yeah, no, that's completely understandable. And I know that's at least in my understanding and like the, the conversation, it's a relatively new thing in terms of its popularity. Um, I'm not very educated on it, but some things I do know, like maybe as like a last resort in combination with lifestyle, because like you mentioned, right, just, of course, maybe giving them the pills will help and get them to a certain point that might be better for them health wise, but will they retain all those benefits lifelong if you don't combine Mm -hmm. it with lifestyle change? So definitely like if it helps someone and like, you know, it's, it's good for them. Sure. Absolutely. 100% support, but making sure like they're also checking off those benchmarks of relationships with food, making sure I'm eating nutritious things, making sure I'm being active. Right. Are we doing those things in combination? The medicine is just kind of that thing, that extra thing to help get you over the hump per se. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Now, kind of the last thing to talk about here is a little bit about the terminology of diet specifically and some different types of diets, right? So upbeat dietitians, uh, yes. slogan, right. <laughs> is correct me if I'm wrong, fighting diet culture and food fats. Is that what it is? Something it's like fighting diet culture and popular popular fats, popular fats, because we also, we didn't want to include just nutrition because Hannah has her personal training. That's right. So I was like, we can do some fitness stuff. I'll just kind of moderate. Hannah's yep. <laughs> dual threat, man. Inclusive. Yeah. You got the CPT yeah. and she's an RD. She got the alphabet mm-hmm. behind her name, man. You got <laughs> yeah. it all. Now people might hear that term and maybe they've heard it a little bit in the culture, a little bit that that term is kind of like becoming more popular diet culture. What does that term mean exactly? So diet culture is in implemented in everyone's life. You, everyone is, I, I don't know if I say victim, but you have been influenced by diet culture one way or another. And it's kind of the entire perception and motivation that we need to be losing weight we need to constantly be dieting. We need to be striving for a summer body. It's very much, it's like a belief system. I actually have a quote from the eating disorder registered dietitians and professionals organization, but they defined it as a belief system that focuses on and values weight shapes and size over well-being. So it's very mm. much it's an aesthetic looking at value. Yes. Yes, gotcha. exactly. It's like, what are we seeing? That is your definition of health. And we're going to do everything in our power to change how we look on the outside. And it's not focusing at all on anything going on inside and all those other components like mental health, yeah, social health, stuff like that. So I don't know if by my definition, You've got in this, but diet culture, we do not like. Yeah, no, 1,000% <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes, I, I want to make sure we clarify that. And it really does reassure people that how you look is kind of equivalent to your like worth and your value as an individual, which is so toxic. And we want really want to get away from that because there's so much more to you than your body size or your weight. Like a thousand percent. I've heard so many times where dietitians will say your weight is the least interesting thing about you. And honestly, uh, like it's a number on the scale. Exactly. That's, I think that goes for everyone. It's that 
there's nothing wrong with wanting to be beautiful or attractive or aesthetically pleasing. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to demonize that for some people. That's just what they want. And I think in some vain part of us deep down, we all want to be attractive, right? Yeah. You want to feel good. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) But look good, feel good is sometimes the thing that's Mm -hmm. it, right? But there's a few things that one looking good doesn't mean starving yourself and putting yourself in an unrealistic uh, situation, whether it's from a dietary or exercise standpoint, that's number one. Number two, like you mentioned, your value isn't just how you look. So yes, you can be a beautiful human being, but what about the inside? What about your personality? What about your relationships, right? What about those other aspects of your life that make up who you are? Cause you're not just your looks or your appearance. And as mm-hmm. we know, looks and appearances change over time, man. Yeah. It's the unfortunate thing in some regards that we all get old. We all mm-hmm. look different as we get older and that's just part of it. So beauty changes as we age. So yeah, definitely noticing that like there's more to you than just that, even though it may be important to you or, or a, a part of your life, it's not everything in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very important. And I always say people like, when people say, are you on a diet or what's your diet? I say a diet is just how I eat. That's yep. That's just my pattern of eating. Mm -hmm. However, it may be changes from day to day, week to week. Some people like different diets better. Some people's body responds better to different diets than other people, but it's just how you eat. Mm -hmm. No, nothing, nothing too crazy about it. Nope. Now I want to kind of quickly go over a few popular diets and kind of a, you know, hot take from a dietitian, right? Like, what do we think about Mm -hmm. these? So first one, a little bit you mentioned earlier is keto, right? The ketogenic diet. Real kind of quick, what is it? And maybe what are some pros or and or cons to it? Or like, what are kind of like your general thoughts about it? Yeah, definitely. So I could go, I have gone an entire episode on keto. (laughs) Like you can, Hannah and I in the Upbeat Dietitians podcast, I think it's like episode seven. Maybe I'm feeling like it's seven, but we do an entire, yeah, we do an entire episode on keto. So if you want the full analysis, head on over there, but I can definitely give the rundown of what it is, why it was created, stuff like that. So a lot of people don't know this, but the ketogenic diet was actually created to treat seizure management in epileptic children. Mm -hmm. So it was never created to be applied to the general public. It really was, they saw that decreasing carbon take with children with epilepsy, children with epilepsy. Yeah. They found more relief and decreases in seizure, seizure exposure. So that was really great. And kind of a lot of these like fad diets started was they were created by a health professional for a disease. And then they just kind of caught wind and everyone decided to apply them to their general life. Yeah. <laughs> and really you should not be on a ketogenic diet, even though it's, I know it's such a large, there's such a large volume of people on keto, but really if it's prescribed to you by your doctor, getting that medical specialist to work with you and also a dietitian to help you through that. That's what's really essential. And kind of like, you might not know what the keto diet is. So it really emphasizes 
it emphasizes a high intake of fat and they say about 65 to 75% of your calories should be from fat, which is really high. If you think about it, that's like almost three quarters of everything you're eating should be fat, which is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. And then that really super low carbohydrate intake, which they say like less than 5% of your calories, which is crazy because just vegetables too, right? Yeah. Yes. Those are, those are carbs. Those are not fats or proteins. So for perspective, a ketogenic diet recommends less than 50 grams of carbohydrate and a low carb diet, which we might recommend for various diseases is 50 to 150 grams. So even compared to like a low carb diet where Mm -hmm. we're putting a lot of restriction on it, it's even lower than that. Yeah. And it really does emphasize like foods like meat, fish, butter, eggs, cheese, cream, oils, nuts, avocado, stuff like that. And you need to restrict or like really limit yourself on like grains, rice, beans, potatoes, sweets, milk, cereal, and fruits and vegetables. It really is. It's a very restrictive diet and very hard to maintain and kind of at the end of the day, the objective is to get yourself into a state of ketosis, which to be done has to be done very strictly where you're watching your macronutrient intake very closely to actually be in ketosis. And this is when your body will revert to utilizing ketones as an energy source compared to like glucose, which you normally get from your carbs and various other sources. But if you have any type of cheat day or you don't meet those different requirements, you're already out of like ketosis. It's so hard to achieve and maintain. And I wanted to discuss the weight loss component of it because mm-hmm. that's kind of kind of the end goal for most of these fad diets is people are doing it for a means of weight loss. And typically they do see success with keto in this very short term. Because when you're cutting out carbohydrates, the main energy store is glycogen in your body. And this is very largely composed of water. So when individuals cut out all these carbs, they're going to experience a lot of water loss. And it's very easy to lose water very quickly. And so they'll see that success in keto really quickly. And then they're like, great. But then over time, once you start to reintroduce carbs back into your diet, because you're probably miserable not being able to eat carbs, that water loss will come right back to you. And then any type of progress will be kind of gone. Yeah. And also not even from, a, I guess, like a, the more of the biochemical standpoint, but if you cut out any macronutrient you're going to lose weight because you're typically less calories, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like people don't normally match the calories that they typically with carbs and they're like protein. It's hard to eat that much fat. It's It's a lot. It's so hard. (laughs) I tried it for like a month back in like undergrad, just to like see what it would feel like. It's hard, man. Oh yeah. And yeah, it's, I do not recommend it from a scientific standpoint, 
And then also like a human being standpoint of enjoying life because life with no pasta is a sad life. No, like life with no fruit, with no pasta, with no bread, uh, with no like sweets. You have to watch a lot of your salty snacks. Like when you're going out to like when you're going out with friends and they want to get like food, yeah. your options are so limited. Yeah. So that's kind of the keto diet. You know, it's all the rage. Someone's going to disagree with me because I've already upset people, keto people in the past. And that's okay. Because, it is what it is, man. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> You're good. Um, let me quickly. Yeah, the keto diet is a, it's a tricky one because, you know, the, the claim is like, oh, I lost all this weight, but I've looked at some studies when you look at it comparatively. First, they'll do studies where they let themselves select their calories pre-keto diet and then while they're on it. And almost always the calories are lower than they normally would. So it's they're like, oh, I lost weight. The water thing is a really, I'm glad you brought that up. The water is huge. Like you said, they're called carbohydrates, right? There's a large water component to them. So you lose water. And if you are losing weight, it's probably because you're eating less calories. But even when you match it for calories, when you look at studies like normal eating, match calories, other diet, the outcomes are the same. And my understanding too, like the whole other maybe fad about it is that some people claim like, well, because you're using ketones and maybe free fatty acids or body fat as more so your fuel, it's better for body composition. I've heard that before, but I haven't really found much literature on it. Is there any validity to that at all? There is, I don't know much about the literature either, but what I do know about macronutrient metabolism is your body normally relies on glucose. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. <laughs> All right. I think, I think everyone's done calling right now. So hopefully popular person, man, <laughs> this is, this is the home phone. This is not for me. Ah. <laughs> um, but to my knowledge, there's not, a, I don't, I'm not as familiar with the research around that. Although I definitely have heard that I am, that's not something uncommon, but your body does rely naturally on glucose and it's like the normal, naturally occurring way your body goes through metabolism. It's not, your body's not trying to sabotage you in any way or I guess, like bring you back on your body composition goals. Yeah. It That's how your normal metabolism works. And when you start to play with that, with restriction and relying more on those ketones, there are a lot of negative side effects. Like the keto flu is a big yeah. one where you just feel miserable and like cranky and drowsy and in pain. And it's not enjoyable to go to go through yeah. like if you're interested in keto try it but yeah we are the current research will tell you you might not have as much success as you think you do with really any type of i guess perform a lot of the performance goals and yeah. body composition goals 
Yeah. I think it might've, I might've been talking to Hannah about it. I can't remember, but I think it was like, your body's very, you know, amazing and what it can do with molecules and like conversion. So like, I think you can actually convert protein to carbohydrate through like certain Yeah, you processes. can, you can. Um, mm-hmm. Gluconeogenesis. There yep. we go. Yep. Boom. I knew those nutrition yep. classes would yeah. pay off, right? <laughs> there we go. There we go. So, yes. yeah. yeah. So like you're like, consuming extra protein or fat, your body's just like, eh, sorry, <laughs> convert. <laughs> Yeah, like even if you're you're trying to trick your body, it's it's smarter than us. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's yeah. not gonna let that happen as easily. Gotcha. So that's cool. So keto, talk about that one. Paleo diet. Hear this one a lot too. It was a little bit more popular. I feel like maybe like five, ten years ago, but you yes. still hear it pop up every now and again. Yes. So the paleo diet was. A lot of people, what they aspire for is they say we should eat like how humans ate in the Paleolithic Paleolithic era, which dates to, back to like 10,000 to 2.5 million years ago. Definitely so like, no Chick-fil-A back then. There was no Chick-fil-A <laughs> back then. Um, you also might have heard of this as the Stone Age diet, the hunter-gatherer diet, or the caveman diet. Caveman diets, I think, is really popular. I mm-hmm. heard that one too a lot. And this kind of follows the premise that if it's not a food they could have found in the like hunter-gatherer methodology, then we shouldn't be eating this. So it really does consist a lot of like lean meats, fish, fruits, vegetables, and seeds. And it limits any food that kind of emerged when farming started to really get up and coming about like 10,000 years ago. So that's like your dairy products, legumes, grains. And to really kind of, I guess, simplify it is the process of hunting and gathering. If you could not go outside right now in like a more natural environment, like you can't go to a farm because it's cheating the system. Right. But like if you went into a forest or you're in a mountain and you could not find the food through the means of hunting or gathering, then it would not be acceptable on the paleo diet. Right. And also a lot of, a big component of the ideology behind this is a lot of individuals believe we're genetically mismatched because of the farming tactics and how everything has changed and how they're putting things in our food and we're changing now our genetics are different. And they actually put a term to this to discordance hypothesis. And there's a reason a lot of our food has changed because if you look over the years, decreasing risk of a lot of chronic diseases can be met through nutrition by a lot of nutrient nutrient deficiencies, like for example, like iodine, mm-hmm. we fortify our salt with iodine, and yeah. that kind of got rid of like the iodine deficiency, which was so popular way back when. And oftentimes, a lot of individuals will see like these enrichments, these fortifications of nutrients and see them as not good and not natural. And they'll kind of place them as bad. Like we need to eat what our ancestors were eating way back when. But if you also look at like 
the diseases you're experiencing, um, they're overall like if they're mal, if they were malnourished, like knew their nutrient status, we need to look at so much more than that. So (laughs) it really is. It's an interesting one. I really like, I don't, I wouldn't say I like hearing about it, but I feel like it has much more of a historical background. So that's kind of interesting. Um, From a weight loss standpoint, it's kind of the same premise where oftentimes people will cut out all these foods and then they won't meet them with their equivalent to what they're allowed yeah. to eat. So they're in that caloric deficit. They're not allowed to eat grains. So once again, you're like pastas, your breads, your sweets, stuff like that. That's all going to be cut out, which is typically a little higher in calories. And especially if you eat that pretty often, you take that all out and you replace it with like meat, fish, fruits, and vegetables. You're going to be eating a lot less calories. Yeah. I, so. I, I, I was laughing so hard because you, you read my mind, right? My, my dark sense of humor kicked in and you're like, what were your ancestors eating back in the day? I'm like, (laughs) pretty sure at some point someone was starving. Right. And like, they were not getting a good amount of food, like getting proper nutrition. Right. And I understand like surface level, like, you know, we don't want to add a bunch of stuff to the food, all the chemicals. Like I, I get that. Mm-hmm. But I think what this does, and I'm all about like empowering people. I think it makes human beings sound very fragile. It's like, it does. We, we can't <laughs> modify our food and our bodies can't adapt. People live in vastly different parts of the world with vastly different accesses to food. And you're saying like, we can't adapt to our food. Also people back in the day with their life expectancy wasn't oh very gosh. high. Their nutritional content wasn't very high. They had to spend their day foraging so they could get enough nutritional value from the crappy food and like how hard it was to eat the food because the food didn't like to be eaten, right? Plants sometimes adapt different ways. So it's harder to get to the food and we made it easier. I I remember watching this video. I'm going to do my best to link it. If I can find it It was a Ted talk from this, at least she was a scientist and she was talking about the paleo diet, how it technically doesn't even exist anymore because we have modified our food so much. And thank goodness we had, like she was showing pictures of like what true wild broccoli looks like. It's like unrecognizable. Like the best was a true banana. True bananas are very, they're smaller, their skin is thicker and they're covered in seeds. You can like barely, you can like barely eat them. You have to peel it and you have to pick out all these nasty seeds and you get like this not as sweet mush. And like, that's your banana. But no one complains. They're like, oh, bananas, natural. It's like, huh, there probably isn't a natural banana out there. And good thing. No. Because they taste better. They got great nutrient profile. And they help us live a longer, healthier, happier life. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just that's found a good that very point. funny. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I've also never thought of that, like, actually eating a paleo diet is probably not realistic at all because of how much everything has changed. Yeah. A lot of our food, like corn is not the same corn that it was back in the day. No. And it allows us to feed more people. Like Mm -hmm. if you have a crappy crop and you don't have like these ways of protecting against bugs and, and weather and everything, if we didn't have that kind of technology, a lot of people would go hungry. So it's a good thing that we modify our food in some regards, you know? Yeah. The increasing population, we have to keep up with it. Yeah. So hundred percent. People already have enough issues with food insecurity, like. We saw, if we went back to the methods before farming and everything, 
so many people would be not eating like anything or yeah. enough. Yeah. Technology is good people and we're adaptive. So, so that your <laughs> yes. body is capable of a lot of amazing things. Mm -hmm. Last one. This one does not go away. So we got to talk no. about it. No. Gluten free diet. I just, you know what it is, Emily? It's an assault on carbohydrates. It, it, I'm telling you, carbs are public yes, enemy number one. Unacceptable. I'm just waiting, though. There's going to be one day where carbs are accepted into society and like proteins thrown out the window. It's, I will also protest that, but I won't be. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> no, yeah. It's kind of, there's always going to be some type of food that is demonized. Of course. And that's like, it used to be, I think salt back in like the eighties, nineties, or was it? And then it transitioned into sugar and now it's carbs. Like, yeah. like who knows what's next? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the gluten-free diet is something I've also, I think I've dealt with probably this one the most, like more so than keto and the gluten-free diet was developed for individuals with celiac disease. For those who don't know, celiac disease is basically, it's an autoimmune disorder where if you consume any type of gluten, you can have a wide variety of symptoms, like from GI distress to like head fog to extreme bloating. Like they do not do well with this. And there actually is like an immune response where someone can mm -hmm. go to like anaphylaxis. And that's why the gluten-free diet was developed because they want to avoid gluten, which is causing these severe responses. So you might be thinking like, what is gluten? We've heard this term so much. It's like this scary food word. It actually is a protein found in wheat, barley, and rye that can basically act as like an elastic texture often in dough. That's kind of its biggest, I guess, like purpose. It was not, it's not developed to make you gain weight. It's not developed to give you diabetes. It's not some like scary food that's going to cause all these negative things. It's a naturally occurring protein in grains, a lot of grains, not all grains, but kind of the most common ones. And some individuals do experience GI distress when they eat gluten, but this is also like kind of when we talk about obesity, you really have to reflect on, is this affected by stress? Is this affected by my environment? Is there something else in the food that is causing me GI distress that I might not be like, I might just be focusing on gluten is the perpetrator, but it could be like the milk or it could be yeah. the soy or corn. It could be something else. And then also an individual's overall health status really can affect their GI health. So it's really important not to self-diagnose yourself No, with like a gluten intolerance or anything like that. And Leave don't write a blog if you aren't an RD about why you need to stop having gluten. No, no. <laughs> I, there's so many, God. so many, but if you do not have the medical condition, if you were not diagnosed by a healthcare professional, there is no need for you to go on the gluten-free diet and kind of our overall theme, our overall theme with weight loss. When, individual, when individuals cut out gluten, 
they often experience weight loss because they're carting out all those like carbs. Yeah. And that's kind of, that is like the overlying theme of <laughs> yeah. well, most of these, like three, these three diets is you're cutting out such a large food group. You're going to be in a caloric deficit. You're going to lose weight. And then once again, going back to like, are you happy? Are you going to be able to maintain this diet for the rest of your life? Are you going to be able to never eat cake again? Are you going to never be able to eat a sandwich or your favorite like chicken Alfredo pasta? Can you live like that? Yeah. And you really need to reflect on, am I happy? And if you are, I guess good for you. (laughs) But enjoy your carbless life. There are, (laughs) yes, when you're cutting out these like all these foods, you're at risk of different nutrient deficiencies. And Hannah and I do a really good job of delving to this one. And like the other, we don't go over paleo yet. So that is a good episode idea. So maybe you'll see that in the future. Thank you. Um, But we have an episode on gluten. Should you even go gluten-free, which I hope by like my little synopsis now, Unless you have celiac or a diagnosed gluten intolerance, you probably should not be. And we have another episode where we bring on actually one of our friends who is a dietitian and she has celiac disease and she kind of discusses That's cool. how she lives with that. Yeah. So like, it's nice because she also discusses the entire like marketing side of gluten-free uh, and how that's affected her life, which is. Yep. Media playing with emotions, man. Trying to get you to mm-hmm. buy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So overall synopsis, I guess, of gluten-free, not necessary. You might experience weight loss, but not the best method to do so. Understood. If I had to summarize this podcast into a short tidbit, it's that carbs are wonderful. Do not ignore them. And if you like them, eat them. Exactly. That's the, that's the most important thing that we talked about this last hour or so. Yeah. Don't let the media or like society scare you about food. <laughs> that's right. No, but in all serious, seriousness, Emily, I really appreciate you bringing some nuance to the table when it comes to talking about diet, talking about obesity, talking about the way we eat. And, you know, like you mentioned a lot of times finding ways to make yourself happier, feel better, and just live a longer, better life. So really appreciate you bringing these cool conversations. I know I learned some cool stuff and I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a lot as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I, this is a great experience. I'm glad I could share some knowledge. There was so much we discussed that I wish I could go more into depth, but I think Hannah and I do a really good job back on our podcast, The Upbeat Dietitians, and you can kind of scroll through the title names. They're pretty straightforward. If there's a topic you're interested on, we do cover a lot of fad diets and a lot of these nutrition nuances you might have heard. You can also find me on Instagram at dietitian. EMK or MK, whichever way you prefer to read it. And that's TIT for dietitian. That's right. <laughs> We're just going to um, And I guess I'm trying to think of where else I'm on. 
I'm also on TikTok. That's kind of. Oh, that's right. I've been seeing some. Yeah. Yeah. So there I am dietitian Emily though. So I try and kind of show off my age there where I, (laughs) where I'm (laughs) able to, I have like some millennial tendencies, but then I also can very much like speak in the Gen Z language. So I show my age there. I I can relate to that on a spiritual level. I'm like in that weird, I was born in 96. So I feel like a lot of things I relate to are millennial, but then like some things Gen Z does, I also relate to a lot as well. So right. It's like the 96 to 97. They're like, I think they call them like zillennials. Zillennials. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Yeah, It's like kind of both, which is nice. But yes, you can catch me on Instagram, Dietitian MK, TikTok, Dietitian Emily. I also kind of take on individual counseling sometimes. It's something I'm kind of growing more into. But if you'd like to apply to work with me, you can go to the link in my Instagram bio and we'll just fill out a little survey and we'll go from there. And other than that, I think those are the main, oh, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Wait, one more thing. One more thing. Hannah and I opened up a kind of like a product store yes. We with the Uppy Dietitians. We're no longer not only a, a podcast. We also have apparel. We have accessories, mugs, all these fun things. So if you're a dietitian, if you're an RD to be like a dietetic student studying to be a dietitian, or even if you just really like nutrition and you want some cool swag for that, go check out our store. It's theuppydietitians.square.store, I believe. But I'll also give you the link to that just so I know it's um, the most accurate information. So be sure to check that out because there's so much fun stuff on there. And we had a lot of fun creating those things. Oh yeah. I'll make sure to put all the links down there again. Check her out. TikTok, Instagram consults, check out the apparel. It's really cool. I'm going to be buying some <laughs> myself. I really want that hat. I really want that tacos and margarita shirt potentially. So <laughs> definitely worth checking out. And if you'd like to work with Emily, like she mentioned, please, you know, message her using the links that I'll have available in the description. As always, y'all know where to find me. I'm on Instagram, the underscore shift underscore method. You can go to my website, theshiftmethod.org. Still got t-shirts. Uh, we still have services available. I'm taking clients. So if you're in the South Florida area and you want some individual buddy or group training, please let me know. Or if you're somewhere else in the United States, let me know. I also do virtual coaching and program design. And of course, this just in, I'm also on TikTok now. So that's the, oh at the underscore shift <laughs> underscore method, making some more fun content there, uh, but also some educational stuff from a fitness and just health, wellness and life perspective. So be sure to check that out. Emily, thank you again so much. It was a pleasure having you on and I hope to have you on in the future to talk about some more awesome things because we're going to keep changing the culture. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. That's it, everyone. Bye-bye.